Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value. The promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. The end of the last chapter, if you can remember back a couple of weeks before Christmas, we were looking at this question that Paul throws into the argument in verse 27 of chapter 3, where then is boasting? And that question seems to come quite out of the blue But actually, as we saw then, Paul is raising a very real issue because boasting or pride is pretty basic to human nature. And he's saying, how does that apply? People are so proud of their achievements and so on, but really grace, he is saying, removes all possibility of pride because all that God has given to us is freely given, is received by faith. He says then, boasting is excluded. Verse 27 of chapter 3, where is boasting? It's excluded. 
we're all on a level ground. We all start at the same place. No one has any head start on anyone else. No one has any advantage. No one's got anything they can boast about. Nothing in our hands we bring. We simply come and receive from God. That's the point that he's made. Then in chapter 4, he raises some questions that some people say, well, these questions aren't really relevant today. It really would be far better to go from the end of chapter 3 right through to chapter 5. Let's cut out chapter 4 because it's raising issues that are of historical interest perhaps, relevant to the Jews in the first century, but not particularly relevant to us, some say. But actually, I think Paul is raising in chapter 4 some very real questions that are of real significance. It may have escaped you as we read through, but hopefully you'll see it before we're through. Because the question is, what about people we would regard as spiritual giants? You don't have to look far back in church history to see people who seem to stand head and shoulders above everyone else, but even in our own day, there are people that we would expect God to use. And then there are ordinary people. There are the giants. You look back just a few years, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, then C.H. Spurgeon, John Wesley, George then missionary heroes, Hudson Taylor, C.T. Study. You can look at all these great names. You think, well, of course God would use them. They were special. Paul raises the example of two giants in Jewish history, Abraham and David. They stand head and shoulders above everyone else. Abraham, the father of the nation. David, the greatest king that Israel had in their history. They stand head and shoulders over the rest, so much so that when Matthew begins his gospel, speaking about the coming of Jesus, he looks at the, the history of Jesus and he says, a record, Matthew 1 verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and Abraham, two spiritual giants. Surely, God looks at them in a different way from the rest of us. And so it is a real issue. It's, it's very common for people to think that God uses some people of you, some people especially, and then there's ordinary people. Think of maybe someone like, in the 20th century, Billy Graham. I wonder how many hundreds of thousands of people came to faith because of the ministry of Billy Graham. Certainly I was one of them, but there's hundreds and thousands. Let me ask you, would you expect God to use you like he used Billy Graham? Would you expect him to use you even a hundredth of the way he used Billy Graham? So you only see hundreds saved instead of thousands. Well, then think of people who maybe move in miracles, healing miracles. Would you expect God to use you like that? And if the answer is no, why? Are they more special? Are they nearer to God? Do they have a special standing? See, it's a real issue. 
we so easily think there are people who have got something to boast about. There are people who have got some special merit, some special claim on God, so God is likely to use them more than is likely to use us, likely to hear them more than is likely to hear us. So what shall we say? Paul raises the question, what about Abraham? Abraham, this giant in Old Testament history, the father of the nations, where the story begins. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If he was justified by works, he had something to boast about. Well, just in case your knowledge of Old Testament history is a bit thin, let's just look at this man Abraham. Just sketch in his story. What made this man special? Back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, he suddenly appears on the scene. In the past tense, it says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. Verse 4, So Abraham left, as the Lord told him. So here we see God for reasons that are not made clear, nothing is said about it, God speaks to this man and says, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. So everything that is familiar, his nation, his people, his family, leave them all and go to a non-specified destination. Go somewhere, the land I will show you. So it's a strange thing that God says to him, and a difficult thing. Leave all the familiar surroundings, everything that makes you tick, everything that gives you security, and go out, and I'll tell you where later. And it says Abraham did it. He left, as the Lord had told him. So called by God, and given some pretty massive promises. I will make you into a great nation. I mean, can you imagine God saying that to an individual, I'll make you into a great nation. That's what he says to this man, this man who just appears on the scene out of nowhere. I'll bless you. I'll, I'll give you a great name. And furthermore, and look at this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's massive. Massive. Leave your people, your father's household, your country, I'm going to give you phenomenal impact. Leave what you know, go into the unknown, and everyone's going to know about you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, massive impact on every nation. In chapter 15 of Exodus, Abraham has got this promise of everyone being blessed through you, but is childless. And in chapter 15 and verse 4, God says, a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So there's the promise, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And then he says, look at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. And then it says, Abraham believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. The very verse that we've looked at in Romans chapter 4. There's this massive promise to a childless man. Look at the stars. That's how your offspring will be. And then in chapter 17. 
God says to him, uh, verse 5, No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants. Then he goes on, the whole land of Canaan, where you're now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Huge promises. An everlasting covenant with Abraham and a land that will be his forever. These are the promises of God. God God calls him, gives him promises, but then tests him pretty severely. And so there in chapter 17, verse 1, It says, Abraham was 99 years old, still hasn't got a son, but he and Sarah have not had any children, and God says, I will make you a father of many. Tested beyond the limits, promised children, but he's 99 years old, and he's still believing God. Furthermore, Of course, we know he had a son, Isaac. And then in chapter 17, uh, sorry, chapter 22, uh, they've, they've got a son now in their old age, seriously old. And in chapter 22, Verse uh, 1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What did Abraham do? Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, and went. Of course, as we know, God intervened and the sacrifice didn't have to take place, but tested again and again. What a man! A man of such faith, such obedience, the promise a long time coming, but he still pressed through. As a man of God, he's got a lot to be proud of. Well, wouldn't you be proud to have a story like that? And furthermore, here we are in 2010, still reading the story. God said to him, it would be an everlasting covenant. We still know the story now. A lot to be proud of. And so, Paul asked the question, what should we say Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. One would have thought that this guy is in a different league from us. He's, a diff- he's made of different stuff from us. Surely, we can see as we look at the story, that's why God loved him. That's why God chose him, because of the kind of man he was. Now, if that were true, then really everything collapses. If, if there was just one human being Apart from Jesus Christ, let's put it this way, if there's one human being with two human parents, if there was one human being who was accepted by God because of some good thing in them, all that we believe collapses, 
everything that we've been singing today is pointless. We might as well close our Bible, leave the building and never come back. Everything collapses if just one person ever in the history of humanity has ever had something in them that causes God to use them, to bless them, because, because they're good. If that were the case, everything collapses because it would mean actually you've got to be good enough. If God is going to use me, I've got to earn it. If I'm going to see people healed when I pray for them, I've got to earn that. If I'm ever going to prophesy so that people's lives are changed, I've got to earn that. If I'm going to preach so people say, I've got to earn it. It's all down to what we can earn. And then, well, we're lost. Because who of us can ever work that hard? You know, there are people who have killed themselves fasting in order to please God. Seriously. People have been so concerned to earn things from God, they've killed themselves, died through the effort. If that's what it's about, this is not good news. It is profoundly bad news. You only need one who's been good enough. And really, the whole thing collapses. So, it's an important question. What about Abraham then? Surely, he's got something to boast about. If, if Abraham was a righteous man... If he had some good thing in him, then the whole thing collapses. But what Paul says is, not before God. He had nothing to boast about. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what does this mean, credited to him? The authorized version, the King James version of the Bible, and indeed the ESV, both use the much more easy-to-pronounce word, counted to him. Credited is a difficult word. I stumble over it. I'm, I'm thrilled that when I read that passage, I didn't stumble once because I normally say credit it, I credit it, I, I get it. Anyway, it's a difficult word. What does it mean? Let's suppose you heard the story that during this wintry weather, I was passing some frozen water. I saw a small crowd there and discovered that a little child had been walking on the ice, the ice had broken, they've fallen in, and people are standing there, what do we do? And you've heard that I fearlessly dived in deep water, found the child, brought them to the surface, gave them the kiss of life, then carried them in my arms through the snowdrifts to the hospital. What a hero. I tell you, if you heard that story, you would look at me with new respect. You would be crediting me with heroism, bravery, sheer stupidity. No, you'd be crediting me with, with all of those things. It wouldn't be true. Because I'm not brave. I can't even swim. <laughs> so, but you'd be crediting me with something that actually isn't true. But you'd view me in a new way, crediting me with bravery. Abraham is credited with righteousness. But he wasn't really righteous. Wait a minute, you say, he was an excellent... I mean, we've looked at the story. Look at this guy, a hero. Yeah, but look at the previous chapter here in Romans. Verse 23, 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. That's the real situation. No one is good enough for God. All have sinned. That includes Abraham. That includes David. And God credited righteousness, counted him as righteous. Why? Not because he was good, but God counts him good on the basis of simply believing. Not doing None of the things that Abraham did made him righteous. What made him righteous was God's gift of righteousness. So, same as if you heard that story of my heroism, in your eyes I'm a hero. I'm not really, but in your eyes I am. Because you've heard the story and you're crediting crediting me with that. Not really, but viewed like that. Abraham is a sinner like everyone else, but counted righteous not because of what he'd done, but because he believed God, because of simply believing the promise. So not a righteous man, humanly speaking, not before God. Equally, Paul goes on to look at another hero. What about David then? Well, David, he says, says precisely the same thing. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Surely David, another hero. Well, actually, we we know he had feet of clay. After all, he was an adulterer and, let's not mince our words, a killer. But nonetheless, viewed as righteous. It's the same basis. You don't have to be good to receive from God. You believe what God says and you're counted righteous. That's what Paul is saying. Where is boasting? No one has anything to boast about. No one is good enough for God. Then he goes on to raise another question. Verse 9, is this blessedness, being blessed by God, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Or to put it another way, is this specially for the Jews? God's chosen people. Have they got a head start on everyone else? Are they closer to God because they're the chosen people and then there's everyone else? And Paul addresses that one. Now, we might say that's not much of a question for us, really. Well, yes, it is in a way. Because the same principle can be applied. We might not say today that about the Jews being a chosen people. It's maybe not that uh, an issue for most people today. But we can still think there are some people who are more likely to see God working than others. We might say, for example, we may hear stories of things happening, say, in some African nations, in Nigeria. We hear people being raised from the dead. We hear thousands being saved. We think, yeah, it's more likely to happen in Nigeria. Or we can hear things happening in maybe South America and some amazing stories coming out of South America and say, yeah, God's more likely to hear you if you, if you live in South America. There are favored nations, and then there's the rest of us. United Kingdom, nothing happens here. We're British, can't expect anything. But if only we lived in the Southern Hemisphere, then we could expect to receive from God. It's the same kind of idea, that there are chosen people. And even within our own nation, we might say, yeah, but we're new frontiers. Or even in this city, we might say, 
City Church Shepherd. Are there special groups? No. What about this matter of circumcision then? Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or or for the uncircumcised, only for the Jew or also for the Gentile? That's what he's saying. But the mark of being a Jew is circumcision. And the point that Paul makes here is that this gift, Abraham was credited as righteous before the covenant of circumcision was given to him, before the land was promised or any of those things to do with being a Jew The righteousness was given before that. It was simply by faith. Well, then a further issue, verse 13. What about the law of God? It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For Israel, the law was so, so important. Think of some of the things that the law required. Sabbath, Sabbath observance, from sundown on, uh, on Friday through to sundown on Saturday, no work of any kind to be done, and that, that was law. Tithing, giving a tenth of everything to God, being so careful not to miss out and only give 9.9%. It's got to be 10%, and you certainly don't want to give 10.1%. And you give it a tithe. That's what you give to God. Imperative that you do that. The food laws, things that are clean and things that are unclean. Was Abraham blessed by God because he was really careful to observe the Sabbath, because he was really careful to tithe? And because he was really careful about what he ate and all of these other laws. Is that why God accounted him as righteous? Well, clearly not, because the law had not yet been given. The law was given through Moses, and that's Moses lived sometime after Abraham. So clearly it's not a matter of law. But in any event, Paul says, The law brings wrath, verse 15. The law just condemns us because no one can perfectly keep the law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law leads to transgression. If there are rules, we break them. Abraham was no different from anyone else, and it was not through law-keeping that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he'd be heir of the world. There was nothing that Abraham did or nothing that Abraham was that caused him to be given such great promises apart from one thing. He simply believed God. And we mustn't then blow that up and say, ah, yeah, but he was a man of really great faith. It's not talking about great faith. It is talking about simply believing. And if you remember, uh, when we were looking at the end of chapter 3 a few weeks back about where is boasting, I used the example of if I were to offer everyone here 20 pounds, so just come out and take a 20-pound note. If I were to do that and you come and take 20 pounds, that says, well, you, you, you came and took it because you believed me. But no one's going to say, wow, what great faith they've got. They'll say how generous I am. It's not a reflection on anyone's faith. It's a reflection on my generosity. You can take it. Abraham simply believed God. It's not a reflection on his level of faith. It's the sheer grace of God that God gives righteousness to those who simply believe him. 
Not great faith. It's just believing. And it's on that basis, nothing that he achieved, that he is accounted righteous. He believes the promise of God. So Paul raises these questions. What about Abraham? What about David? What about Jewishness? What about the law? And notice in the middle of all of that, in verse 3, or or in the midst of it rather, in verse 3, as he raises these questions, he says, what's the scripture say? That's a very important question. What does the scripture say? Notice he doesn't even say, what do the scriptures say, which would have been quite a reasonable thing to say. But the scripture, it's all one book really, it's all God's word. Yeah, there are many books in there, but it's one book. What does the Scripture say? And when you say, what does the Scripture say? It's the same as saying, what does God say? Because that settles the issue. And we need to bear that in mind and never forget it as a very important principle. It's not, what do I think? What do you think? What's our opinion? What, what do we all agree on? It's, what does the Scripture say? I hope in your core group, as things get discussed, and maybe this week you'll be discussing what you've heard this morning, and people say, well, I think this, I'm not sure about this. I hope finally your group leader will say, what does the scripture say? It's the most important question to ever ask. That's what settles the issues. What does the scripture say? And if everyone says, well, I don't know, well, then let's look at it. Where is there a scripture that's relevant to whatever it is we're talking about? What does the scripture, what does the Bible say? That's what settles arguments. And so Paul raises this thing, what about Abraham? Well, what does the scripture say? And he looks at what the Bible says, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him. And he says, now, when a man works, then what you receive isn't credited to you. You've earned it. It's an obligation. But he says, to the man who doesn't work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited. Now, please don't understand verse five, misunderstand rather verse 5. It's actually saying it's a good thing not to work. The man who doesn't work. Um, now, actually, the Bible says elsewhere, the man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. So it's not saying it's a good thing just to be lazy. But it's saying... The person who is not relying on their own effort to please God, that's what it's talking about, but someone who simply believes God, faith credited as righteous. We are righteous by faith. Paul sums the whole thing up in verses 16 and 18 at the end of the section that we read together, verses 16 and 18, to say it is by faith so that it may be by grace. By faith by grace, not a reward for obedience, not an achievement, not the outcome of hours of praying, days of prayer and fasting and so on. It's not anything that we've done. It's by faith, by grace. Grace means undeserved, unearned, unmerited, freely given. It's a matter of simply believing God's word. God's word about the gift of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Abraham was looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham was looking forward. We don't know how he understood it, but Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham is believing in the one who's going to come, and he receives righteousness by faith. That's what we do. We simply believe. We don't have to try and cancel anything that we've done. We can't. 
We simply believe. And having come on that basis, that's how we proceed. Nothing is earned, all freely given. You see, Paul says here in verse 17 about Abraham, we've seen it back in Genesis, it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he believes. He's the father of us all. All nations, everyone comes by the same route. There is one way of salvation for all people at all times. Only one way. God hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed. It is by faith, by grace. Anyone who believes becomes a descendant of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So, come back to the question I asked earlier. Is God more likely to use other people than he is likely to use you? Is God more likely to work miracles through church leaders than church members? Is God likely to work miracles through you? Is God likely to give you words to give to people that will change their lives forever? Is God likely to do that for you? Or are you just ordinary? Are there special people? People who have, you know, we use the expression paid the price. Are there people who have really sort of done whatever it is that impresses God? You're not really sure what it is, but there must be something. I heard a preacher once terribly say, salvation is free, but after that you have to earn everything. Is that what you believe? God's not likely to use you because you're aware that your prayer life isn't as good as you feel it should be. God is not likely to use you because, well, you do read the Bible, but you don't seem to know it as well as some other people do. And you go to work every day, you come home, you don't have time to give days to prayer and fasting. God's not likely to use you. Do we think we earn things from God? The people who have earned it are more likely to see things happen. In fact, they're certain to see things happen, but the rest of us have not earned it, and therefore we just admire the others. I tell you, a lot of people operate as if that was how it is. Paul is raising some real issues here. Are there giants? Giants of faith. Abraham, David... Or giants in our own day. People, oh, they're moving in great... Oh, God will use them. Not me. I'm just ordinary. I haven't been a Christian very long. Don't know. You know, we come up with all the, the things that disqualify us. As if there are also things that would qualify. No, there are not. There is nothing that disqualifies. Hear me. There is nothing that disqualifies you from being used powerfully by God. And there is nothing you can do that would qualify you either. Simply believe in God. Simply believe in God. That's how we're saved. We believe the gift of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ because he died a substitute for us 
suffering the wrath of God that we richly deserve because no one's righteous. We richly deserve the wrath of God. He suffered it. He took our place and has opened the way now for us to be children of God. And that is what we are. And as children of God, we believe him. He uses us. The devil says, ah, no, it's that plus. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. That's the devil. Paul addresses that when he speaks to his friends in the Galatian churches because they've got drawn into that lie. It's the gospel plus, plus, plus. And he says, no, how do you work miracles? By faith, by believing what you've heard, not by the works of the law. He answers that very issue. It's not by the works of the law, by doing this. It's just by believing God. God has done it all. Abraham is an example of that. Simply believing. And look what God did. David, an adulterer, a murderer, but God forgave him. No one is disqualified or qualified. It is the grace of God. There are no great men. There is a very great God. And we don't want to be impressed by so-called great men. We do need to be impressed by a very great God. And to believe what he can do. He's the one, it says here, who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That's God Let's take our eyes off what we think we're qualified for or disqualified from and say, this is God, and this is our God, and we belong to him, and we are his children. From the youngest to the oldest who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is true. We have nothing to offer except our very great need. He has done it all. We supply death. He supplies life. We supply powerlessness, he supplies power. And it's all him. And when he works, then we don't bask in his reflected glory and say, oh, didn't I do well? It was God. It was God. Where's boasting? Excluded. Abraham even had nothing to boast about. David, the greatest king in Israel's history, nothing to boast about. It was all grace. No one's got a head start. No one starts at a disadvantage. We're all on the same level. God, the God of grace, invites us to simply believe him and receive from him. And we simply believe what is promised, acceptance, forgiveness in Christ, and then we motor on by faith. Let's pray.